From the garden level of Harvard Medical School's historic Vanderbilt Hall in Boston, this is Think Research, a podcast that discusses the stories behind medical research. I'm Abby, your host. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. Zika was first discovered in Uganda's Zika forest in 1947 and has been common in places like Africa and Asia. It wasn't until 2013 that it began spreading to the Western Hemisphere, initially in Brazil and now throughout Central and South America and parts of the United States. Zika virus has escalated to an international epidemic. Those who are pregnant or of childbearing age, both women and men, can put their unborn child in danger as Zika virus is associated with microcephaly, a condition in which a child is born with an abnormally small head because the brain did not properly develop during pregnancy. Microcephaly is a lifelong condition that can include developmental delays, intellectual disabilities, seizures, and more. Since 2015, 70 countries and territories reported evidence of Zika virus transmission. Here to discuss the most recent findings about Zika and why it is so crucial for research to be done to better understand the impacts is Dr. Laura Riley. Dr. Riley is the medical director at Massachusetts General Hospital's Labor and Delivery Unit and the director of Obstetrics and Gynecology Infectious Disease. She is the chair of the Immunization Task Force at the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists and serves as the liaison to the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practice. In addition, Dr. Riley mentors OBGYN residents in Southern Uganda. Welcome to the show, Dr. Riley. Thank you. So what occurred to make this virus suddenly go from being around for decades to being an international epidemic? I don't think it's 100% clear, but it's probably a bunch of factors. Um, As you know, the virus was first discovered in 1947 in Uganda in one of the forests there. Um, But um, to the best of our knowledge, there wasn't um, a widespread, um, you know, human problem at that time, probably because... um, You know, Uganda is a very different layout um, and, you know, people aren't in in the inner city, um, all one on top of the other, Um, as well as um, it would appear that, you know, many people already have immunity. Um, to the to the virus in many of those countries in Africa. So it may be that because they've already been exposed, that's why you didn't see sort of the widespread disease that you saw in later um, epidemics. So what do researchers know as of now? This is an area where uh, literally every day something new is learned. I think the issue, um, the, the thing that has been learned the most is that um, you know, places like Brazil and Colombia or South America have had um, uh, a huge influx of, not even so much an influx, but a huge increase in cases fairly quickly after the virus was um, identified. Um, And within months, say, across Colombia, um, where they were actually doing active surveillance because they had the experience from Brazil, um, within seven to eight months, um, the vast majority of the population was um, infected. 
And um, it speaks to sort of the way the virus um, works and is transmitted. So the virus um, gets into the Aedes mosquitoes. So there's the Aedes aegypti and the Aedes um, albopictus mosquitoes. Um, the virus gets into those. They replicate. Um, then the mosquito bites a person, a human. Then that mosquito is, is around long enough and people are close enough that then it bites the next person. So then you can very quickly in areas like Brazil, Colombia, where everyone's close together, you can see how it goes through the entire um, country very rapidly. What don't researchers know that is currently their biggest focus? So I think because um, the Zika virus has now been classified as a um, as a teratogen, meaning um, we know that Zika virus, when um, pregnant women are infected, uh, some percentage of those women uh, will go on to have um, uh, fetuses that have microcephaly or other neurologic um, complications. Um, and so I think the vast majority of energy right now is uh, being spent, if you will, trying to uncover, you know, what's really going on in terms of pregnancy-related complications. Is there a sense of how long the virus stays in your system? So that's a great question. Uh, I think it's one of those uh, that we're still learning. So what's been found so far is that... Um, you know, the virus is in your system for, you know, possibly weeks um, uh, after initial infection. But the interesting thing is that um, that really reflected how long it was in your blood. What they found in men is that when men got infected, um, there were reports where it lasted in the semen up to three months or so, in which case um, that's what led to the rather strict guidelines about um, when to conceive after men have an infection. And so that guideline is now you should wait six months prior to conception because of the concern that it lasts in the semen and was infectious in the semen uh, for an extended period of time. It seems to be a little bit less in women, but again, I think that the, the, there's lots of ongoing research looking at vaginal fluid versus semen, et cetera. The good news, though, is that it would appear that once you've had the infection and cleared the infection, that you have lifelong immunity. Remains to be seen, but that's the sense so far. So that when people are thinking about conception, if they get it a year later, they've, they should be immune. They shouldn't need to worry about it um, after that. I would say, so one you know, thing that I think people ask me all the time is, should I just go to Puerto Rico and get it so that I don't have to worry about it two years from now when I want to get pregnant? And I would caution against that um, for one main reason is that we do know that the virus also does cause Guillain-Barre. And so it's not like it, for the most part, it's a mild illness that you recover from if you get any symptoms at all. But there is an uh, there has been an uptick in cases of Guillain-Barre, which is a progressive neurologic um, weakness illness that is uh, that can occur after infections, and it seems to be increased after this particular viral infection. So, 
I don't think I would do that. What is it about being pregnant that causes the disease to have such a monumental impact? I don't know that we know that. I mean, it's a great question. Why do viruses that affect the mother then infect and affect the fetus um, is a big question. I think it remains a question here as well. Um, we There are a couple of theories about how the Zika virus may infect the baby. Um, one theory is that the virus, the, the mother gets the infection, um, the virus gets to the placenta, the placenta tries to contain the virus, and there's a huge inflammatory response, and it destroys blood vessels in the process, etc. And so then the baby is set up for poor outcomes because the placenta is destroyed. Um, another theory is that the virus just gets through the placenta and um, attacks the fetal um, neuroprogenitor cells, um, which then could explain why there's such a big neurologic um, devastation that goes on. Um, at the moment, uh, those are theories. It's not clear. I think there's lots of research being done as we speak on the placenta, on which cells are preferentially infected and turned on and turned off. Is there a point in pregnancy that the effects of Zika are more or less impactful? What we understand at the moment is that if we uh, draw an analogy to other viral illnesses that cause um, birth defects in babies, uh, we would say that first and second trimester exposure tend to be worse. What we're finding with this particular virus, however, is that even um, uh, when uh, fetuses are infected in the third trimester of pregnancy, there appear to be some neurologic um, poor outcomes. So I think um, the information on this is all evolving. I'd say that we are gaining by the day, we're gaining more and more knowledge from the uh, cohort studies, which are being done um, in Brazil, in Colombia, and in Puerto Rico. And so published so far um, from the Brazil cohorts, um, there's not a huge number of um, uh, patients who have complete data. But of those patients that have complete data, it looks like there's a number of neurologic poor outcomes. Microcephaly is not the only one. There seem to be other brain disruption adverse events uh, that are being seen. In addition to miscarriage, um, as well as uh, stillbirth. There's also been um, uh, reports of something called arthrogryposis, which is another um, malformation and neural tube defects, as well as eye abnormalities, so rendering kids blind. So it's, you know, it's quite a devastating, potential devastating outcome. Given all the ongoing research, where do you think we should go from here? Um, it's a great question. I think that there are um, several different areas of research that will move this forward. There are several clinical questions that I have as a practicing obstetrician and that, you know, patients want to know now. Um, some of those questions are, um, you know, what's the natural history of this disease, you know, within pregnancy? So we know that, you know, a woman could, you know, get bitten um, uh, get the disease within two to, you know, five days of being bitten. Um, and you know that because she has symptoms, but then we also know that only one in five people have symptoms. So what about the people who don't have any symptoms? You know, what's likely to happen to, to those women? 
Um, and then really the big question for women is, you know, what's the likelihood that number one, I will get infected, number two, that I will infect my baby, and then number three, that my baby will be affected. And right now we aren't able, we don't know enough to be able to say your risk is 1%, your risk is 30%, your risk is 80%. The other issue that you know, we sort of talked about is um, understanding what the long-term neurologic outcomes uh, may be. So baby comes out, the imaging is all beautiful, kid looks great as a, you know, as a newborn, but as a toddler, it doesn't do well. I mean, and and people want to know, you know, what does that mean? What's the likelihood? What should I do about it? So those are some of the clinical questions. I think in terms of clinical prevention, I think all we can offer at this point is avoid, you know, being in places where Zika is widespread. Um, We need to worry about, um, you know, so for travelers, it's staying away from those places, recognizing that it seems like those places are adding up every day. But then the other, you know, issue is um, we know that it's sexually transmitted. So that's a whole nother ball of wax that is harder to control um, because you can educate people and ask them not to have intercourse, to use condoms, et cetera. But, you know, those are behaviors that have always been difficult to um, to change. Uh, so I think we don't know really what the way is going to be to prevent infection between couples um, other than abstinence um, at the moment or try not to get pregnant, um, which is a whole nother uh, topic. I think there's a huge opportunity in the area of diagnostics um, because another challenge with this disease has been that it's difficult to make the diagnosis in a timely manner. So what we are um, using clinically are two tests, um, mainly the IgM, so the um, antibodies, the um, IgM antibodies, finding that in the mother's serum suggests um, that she's had a recent infection. We don't know sort of the natural history of that IgM. How long is it going to be positive? How long can we, you know, count on that as a way of making the diagnosis? We also have PCR, um, which can be utilized. Um, but again, the PCR reflecting how much virus is in the um, system may be a very quick um, a test in the in the sense that it's there and then it's not and and then it's not there it's not capturable um, and the tests are difficult to run in the sense that the IgM test cross reacts with other viruses that may be in the population so dengue and chikungunya if they're in the population can make those tests um, difficult to separate we don't have an IgG test at the moment so we can't test for immunity. Um, and that would be incredibly helpful as we go forward. And then one other final thing about the testing is that we know a little bit about the use of the tests in serum, in urine, but we don't really know how well these tests perform in amniotic fluid. And as an obstetrician trying to make a diagnosis of whether or not the baby's infected, uh, having a test that can accurately reflect that by reflecting in an amniotic fluid is is absolutely important. So right now we're doing it, but we don't know really how sensitive and specific that testing is. And then finally, I think you know vaccines uh, is an area where um, 
you know, we want to get more information, you know, that may be the way to ultimately control the effect of this virus, um, because we know in those populations where there was high immunity to um, the Zika virus, you didn't see all these bad outcomes. Um, and so there's um, lots of desire to see an immune response be created. And a vaccine in a pregnant woman, you know, vaccine prior to pregnancy or a vaccine in childhood or a vaccine in late childhood uh, may be the way to control this virus ultimately. Mm. And since the concern is really focused on pregnant women and women of childbearing age, how can research and vaccines safely be tested on this population? I think um, there's lots of concern about that, obviously, because there's two patients and no one wants to give a vaccine and then have some bad outcome of the fetus. Uh, but I think it's important to think about the fact that uh, the vaccines that we're talking about are likely not to be live vaccines. So, you know, it's no one's going to put a live vaccine in a pregnant woman and see how that works out. I think uh, there are many other uh, formulations, um, if you will, of the virus that could promote immunity without promoting harm. And there are other vaccines which have been tested in pregnancy or utilized in pregnancy with great success. Influenza vaccine, um, Tdap vaccine, which is tetanus pertussis, um, you know, hepatitis vaccine. There's a list of them that can be used safely. Um, and obviously, if the risk of the disease is greater then, you know, any potential risk of the vaccine is something that really needs to be evaluated. You've talked about a number of ways that Zika is transmitted. Are there any other ways you get the virus? Yes. So we've, you know, talked about the sort of the, the main ones, which would be mosquito bites to human. Um, we've talked about mother to child. Um, and we've talked about sexual intercourse. Uh, the other concern is that um, there could be um, there could be uh, transmission through blood transfusion, and um, that the the evidence behind that is that when they've looked at places where there have been you know mass outbreaks of um, a Zika virus, um, in blood donations from those um, areas, you do find many that have been infected with Zika virus. And um, there is one report at the moment of a patient who was um, transfused with platelets um, who then contracted Zika virus. So currently, we don't know how efficient that way of transmission is, but given the concern, um, and certainly it's probably a little bit more than theoretical, um, many places have taken a conservative approach to that and um, refused to take uh, transfused blood from patients with Zika or in, even in areas where Zika is widespread. And then the other area that I think as an obstetrician we worry about um, is uh, breastfeeding. So, you know, can you transmit the Zika virus to your child, you know, after birth in the process of breastfeeding? Um, and although uh, Zika virus has been found in breast milk, uh, there have not been any reported cases of transmission. And the current recommendation right now is that the benefits of breastfeeding are so great 
uh, and the risks so small that we're not changing our current recommendations that women should breastfeed up to a year. For physicians, how should someone treat their patients who may have concerns regarding recent travel and they think they may be affected? So there's sort of a complex uh, algorithm. I think it depends on uh, who the patient is. So first, let's take, you know, sort of my area of expertise, which is going to be the pregnant woman. So um, the recommendation is that we actually do a, a travel history on every pregnant woman at every visit so that we can ask really two questions. Number one, has she traveled to any of those areas that have been affected? And number two, has her partner traveled to any of those areas affected? And if that partner has traveled, um, have they had unprotected intercourse? Because all of the questioning is to try and figure out, is this woman even at risk? Um, If she's at risk, it's then a matter of determining, you know, should she be tested? When, When was the risk? Um, and then we've talked about the complicated algorithm of testing. Um, and then part of that testing also includes ultrasound um, to look and see if the baby has been affected. Um, and another piece of that algorithm may be, depending on the extent of the illness, is um, amniocentesis to see if the baby's been infected. The other group of patients that um, we are recommending testing on is people who travel to an area that we know Zika virus is widespread, and then they have symptoms. So um, the symptoms that are um, consistent with Zika virus are things like fever, malaise. Um, the, the main ones are rash, usually immaculate papular rash, headaches, um, arthralgias, and then a um, a non-purulent conjunctivitis. So when patients have these symptoms and have been to a place with uh, where they could have been exposed to Zika virus, the recommendation is to go ahead and test them and figure that all out so that you can then give them, you know, appropriate precautions um, and certainly ask them about their intent about conception. What's next for you and Zika? So obviously I am uh, as excited about the research that comes out every day. Um, And clearly as a clinician, I want to be able to um, counsel women better to alleviate some of their anxiety where it's appropriate. I continue to work on guidelines for physicians um, as well as information for patients as we learn more and need to make adjustments. Because I think an area that everyone is really uh, conscious of and concerned about is, you know, these families uh, who whose babies are affected with Zika virus who go on to have, um, whether it be microcephaly or some other neurodevelopmental poor outcome, um, that's going to take resources to, you know, take care of those families and to help those parents. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for the opportunity. Harvard Catalyst Think Research is supported by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Join us the first Wednesday of each month for a new episode. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and our website, www.catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch. research.